What beloved historical film isn't supposed to exist? What was the original purpose of the Hollywood sign? What famous 20th century actress started her own production company? Find out all that and more about the history of cinema when Forgotten History Nerds goes Hollywood. What's up, my Forgotten History Nerds? You're listening to the Forgotten History Nerds podcast, where each week I'm going to be taking you on a special in-depth look at a place, figure, event, or custom that has largely been forgotten or downright neglected by the mainstream version of history that they taught you in school. Now, I am your host of this fine historical program, as always, M.V. Genzali, and I have a very, 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 very special cinematic treat for you guys here today because we're going to be talking movies and the history of movies today but before we get started i'd like to ask you a quick question paraphrased from ghostface here what's your favorite movie me personally i have a couple answers to that but if i had to pick one it would have to be have to have to have to be a nightmare on elm street now enough of my stupid previews let's get on with the show shall we I figured what better a place to start this podcast off with than the literal symbol of American cinema in the Hollywood sign. The Hollywood sign was first erected in the year 1923 as the Hollywoodland sign. Hollywoodland was the name of a nearby upscale housing development that the sign was originally constructed to advertise. Yep, that thing you've seen in the background of so many of your favorite movies was initially just a giant billboard. Now, just like the Eiffel Tower, The plan was only to leave the sign up for a certain amount of time, in this case just over a year, then take it down. This unusual billboard, by the way, cost about 300 grand in our modern currency, about 21 grand back then, and was the brainchild of one Harry Chandler. Chandler was a real estate developer who at the time owned the biggest real estate collection in the country. The man was loaded. Now, what saved this iconic sign? And why did Hollywood land become just Hollywood? Well, we sort of have the Great Depression to thank for that, actually. See, nobody really had any money in those days, so the sign fell into a state of disrepair. I mean, the H literally fell at one point, making it Hollywood land for a short while. The land part was removed in restoration efforts by the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. This was done to take the emphasis away from the Hollywood land development, and more so place it on the Hollywood area itself, as by this time the city of LA had come into ownership of the sign. Oh, and if you're wondering why it wasn't taken down after its initial year, well, people quickly came to love the sign so much that nobody wanted to get rid of it, so the sign stayed. At least until the 1970s, when they completely gutted the sign and replaced it with a brand new sign. By that time, the sign had deteriorated a great deal and was in a massive state of disrepair once again. So, they replaced it with a more durable version of the sign. Freely adapted from Bram Stoker's Dracula. When the question regarding the most well-known silent film ever made is brought up, I'd imagine that Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror from 1922, isn't too far off of your mind, is it? Nosferatu is regarded by many as one of the greatest horror films of all time as well. Of course, the film is essentially just a rip-off of Bram Stoker's Dracula, with a few slight, keyword here folks, slight changes to it. You and I aren't the only people who noticed that. Florence Stoker, the widow of Bram Stoker, noticed this ripoff too, and sued the hell out of Piranha Film, aka the company that made the film, along with those involved in making it. Now, I will give Nosferatu just a little bit 
ish of respect here. You'll see why I say ish in a minute. See, prior to Nosferatu's filming, Albin Garnu, I probably butchered his last name, so I apologize, but anyway, Albin Garnu, Garu? Anyway, Albin Garu, one of the film's producers, and a World War I veteran, I may add, inquired about purchasing the film rights for Dracula from Florence Stoker. She just refused, and he kind of just made a film adaptation anyway. It was very easy to prove that Nosferatu was just a straight ripoff of Dracula. Therefore, the judge presiding over the case ruled that all copies of the film were to be destroyed. And they were, except for a handful. One of which, or two, depending on the source, made their way into the United States by the end of the 1920s, where thankfully, Nosferatu was free to go. See, due to a copyright error, Dracula had already entered the public domain in the U.S. We only know about Nosferatu today because of these couple of films that made their way into the U.S. They are the surviving things that essentially fathered all of the copies that we have in our modern age. Hooray for people breaking the law! Oh, fun little tidbit! Did you know that Nosferatu wasn't actually the first film adaptation of Dracula, as many incorrectly claim it to me? That distinction belongs to a film by the name of Dracula's Death from a year earlier in 1921. Though, here's the thing. It's a lost film, and it doesn't really directly, directly follow the events of Bram Stoker's novel, so some people don't really count it, but I do because Dracula sort of appears in it. Anyway, a young lady named Mary is admitted to an insane asylum, where she encounters one of the inmates who claims to be Dracula. Afterwards, she has these horrifying visions and dreams about him, but... She doesn't know if they're actually real. I wish I could tell you more about this film, but as I said, it's been lost to the pages of history. A fair amount of films from back then have been lost to history. A lot more than you'd think. Oh, anyway, speaking of films that have been lost to the pages of history, Segway time! Save from the Titanic! Over the years, there have been dozens and dozens, and yes, dozens, of movies made about the Titanic sinking. From a Nazi Germany propaganda film to James Cameron's 1997 masterpiece and everything in between, this is the story of the first Titanic film ever made. It was released just under a month after the actual sinking in May of 1912. Believe it or not, it starred actress Dorothy Gibson, who is a genuine Titanic survivor as its main character slash the narrator of this silent film. At the time of the Titanic sinking, Gibson was only 22 years old. That's the same age I am right now. I'm just trying to picture having to endure a similar situation like that in my head, and I just can't do it, man. I couldn't imagine being on a sinking ship of a freezing night in the North Atlantic. It's scary. Anyways, she was returning home from a vacation in Europe. What a way to end your vacation, huh? Production of the film began only a few days after the tragedy occurred. I don't even think it was a week afterwards. Authenticity was a very important thing to the filmmakers during production. They truly wanted to make the audience feel like they were on the Titanic that cold April night. The movie used stock footage of the Olympic, aka the Titanic sister ship, that looked exactly like it. Their differences are only slight. Most people wouldn't even be able to tell the difference between the two ships in a photo lineup. I've also heard rumors that footage of the recently deceased Captain Smith was also used in the film's production. There's no way to confirm that. More on that momentarily, folks. Gibson allegedly helped to write with many of the scenes to model what her actual time on the ship that the White Star Line never called unsinkable looked like. 
Speaking of her, Gibson was said to have shockingly suffered a mental breakdown, either during the film's production or just after completion. Shocking, I know, right? It probably didn't help her mental state that during the filming of the movie, she wore the exact same clothing that she did on the night of the sinking. Oh, and just for kicks, I've also heard that the film company even used actual photographs of the Titanic itself in the movie. If you're curious as to the film's plot, here's a short little synopsis. The film is basically a series of flashbacks to the sinking, as told by Gibson to her family. Fictionalized family, of course. The total runtime for the film was about 10 minutes or so. About an average silent film length of that area. Reaction to the film was surprisingly mostly positive from all over the world. Of course, there were many who saw the action of creating a film less than a month after a tragedy that claimed the lives of over 1,500 people as a senseless move meant to profit from the dead. I'm probably going to have to agree with the latter. Here's a couple of things that happened afterwards, after the film was released. Gibson would later personally gift then-President Taft with Prince of the Film, Taft, by the way, lost a close friend in the Titanic sinking, and it was amongst those contacting the White Star Line for information when news of the disaster became public. Dorothy Gibson never acted again after this. Perhaps it might interest you to know that at the time, she was one of the most famous and well-paid actresses in the world. The strain on her emotions was just too much. By the end of 1912, there were at least two other films about the Titanic sinking, including a German one. Now, despite its popularity, Saved from the Titanic had a very short shelf life. The final known copy of the film was destroyed in a fire in the year 1914. Thus, the film has been lost to the annals of history. Many experts refer to it as one of the greatest losses in the history of silent film. But what do you guys think? Would you watch it if you could? I would have to say a morbid yes, just out of curiosity. The news regarding the film's fate, by the way, isn't all bad. Some think that there are other copies of the film that might still be out there, just waiting to be uncovered. There are, however, still relics to the film, mostly just a few photos and stills. I posted a few of them to our Instagram page, at Forgotten History Nerds, if you'd like to have a look. On the 7th of January, 1955, in New York City, Marilyn Monroe held a press conference to announce to the world the creation of Marilyn Monroe Productions, Inc. She was joined in this new business endeavor by co-founder of the business, photographer Milton Green. The two had met the year earlier when Monroe was being photographed for Look Magazine and quickly became fast friends and business partners. This company's founding, by the way, made Monroe one of the very first women in Hollywood to own their own production company. Unfortunately, the news wasn't looked at with too much excitement. Instead, Monroe became a common subject of ridicule and insults, namely from the press. There was even a Broadway play titled, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, that made fun of her with a stereotypically dumb blonde sex symbol, you can figure that one out, starting her own production company and failing miserably at it. Can you imagine how that must have felt to have virtually an entire Broadway play that lasted about a year just to make fun of you. And let's get one thing out of the way. Marilyn Monroe was far from an idiot. She allegedly possessed an IQ of 168 points, though of course there's not really any way to prove that. She was probably more well-read than a lot of you, probably more well-read than me too. She studied Shakespeare a decent amount and was known to have been a voracious reader of many classic works of literature. 
Anyways, the company opened with 101 shares, Green would own 50 of them, and Monroe would own the other 51 shares to hold a slight majority in ownership of the company. Monroe was of course the company's star, while Green acted as the businessman behind the company, and basically did the boring bookkeeping businessy type stuff. Granted, I think Green deserves a lot of credit too. Dude even took out a mortgage on his house to fund this endeavor. Frank Delaney and Irving Stein served as the company's lawyers. The company had one more initial employee in Joseph Carr, who served as the company's bookkeeper. The company had an office at 480 Lexington Avenue in Manhattan, less than a mile away from Times Square. The building is still there today, where I believe, please don't quote me on this, it's a residential space. Now, unfortunately, MMP, as it's referred to by some, didn't really pay the bills, nor have the money to make films, so Monroe was forced to work with other companies in the meantime, namely Fox. Monroe's relationship with Fox can best be described as troublesome. In the latter half of 1955, Monroe signed a new deal with Fox that would grant MMP about a $100,000 share for every one of the four films Monroe was scheduled to be in. This came after a legal battle between Monroe and Fox, where she surprisingly was able to defeat the big giant of Hollywood. This was noted to be a major victory in the world of film, proving that the top dog could be beaten in a court of law. The victory also marked a turning point for MMP, because now people began to show the company the respect that it deserved. The following year, MMP released its first as well as only film, and The Prince and the Showgirl, starring Jane Mansfield. Psh, I'm just kidding. Starring Monroe, of course. Mansfield did appear in the aforementioned Broadway play that mocked Monroe as a parody of her. She was a contemporary of Monroe's. Think blonde and a sex symbol of that era. Yeah, there was a bunch of others from that era like that. Like Monroe, she was also alleged to have slept with JFK. Anyways, for its first movie, MMP made quite the mistake or two. It only had about two days of reshooting. For a movie, that's next to nothing. See, normally reshoots take a fair amount of time in order to accomplish. Some take months for the really high-budget ones of our modern era. You're talking like your endgame level type of movie. I will say, to its credit, the film took less time to shoot than initially thought, as well as come in under budget. However, coming in under budget is not necessarily a good thing either. It all depends how the film actually does. As for the film's reception, I've heard it found some success in the UK and Italy, where it won an award or two. That's... that's really it. Over here it was seen as just okay. A passable film with not too many things really going for it or against it. Honestly, I think that's kind of the worst movie you can make. Everybody loves a great movie, obviously. And everybody loves to make fun of a bad movie for how shit it is. Hello, Jason X, have you ever seen it? It is horrible, but I love it for being a train wreck. But when a movie is just there, it receives very little attention. Marilyn Monroe, of course, received praise for her acting, though. She was pretty good in it. I will say so myself. I have seen the movie. And that's great. But it wasn't that great for Marilyn Monroe Productions. I believe the film only made $1.6 million domestically, uh, $4.3 million total, I want to say. That was not a great hit that would really help the company out that much. 
The company didn't really last too much longer afterwards as the relationship between Marilyn Monroe and Milton Green deteriorated, quickly resulting in Monroe firing Green as well as buying out his remaining shares in the company. When talking about MMP, there's this big emphasis on remembering the company for its financial matters regarding taxes and such. Remember, it only made that one movie. After that, the company was pretty much dead in the water. Mary Celeste style. Now, I say Mary Celeste style and not say Titanic style because for a while afterwards, the company continued to exist until Marilyn's demise. And sort of, kind of, still does to this day. More on that in just a second. During this time, Monroe kept the company around simply for tax purposes. This caught the attention of the authorities of the time who began investigating Monroe. Granted, nothing ever came of it. Sort of unrelated note, but did you know that at one time Marilyn Monroe was investigated by the FBI? Though it's not really that exciting of a story, more so just related to the communism witch hunt that was going on in the United States at the time. Again, nothing came of it. Marilyn Monroe Productions exists to this day, albeit in a new form. It is no longer a production company for movies, but rather a part of her estate, which still makes a sizable chunk of coin every year, by the way. We're talking millions of dollars a year. Can you imagine how different the landscape of cinema would have been had the company survived? I know I'm supposed to be your impartial historical host, folks, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't rooting for Monroe's underdog company to succeed. I'm a fan of Monroe's work. But, alas, that's not how business or really real life even works, so... Unfortunately, Marilyn Monroe Productions is a what-might-have-been scenario, instead of a what-it-did. Fun fact about cinema. Have you ever wondered why it's called a movie trailer? Well, originally they would play the trailers after the movie had ended, not before it. Thus the name trailer. There was just one teeny-tiny massive problem with this format. Most people in the theaters didn't really care about them. They had already seen their movie and just wanted to go home. So, the decision was made to play the trailers before the film instead, semi-forcing the audiences to watch them. I don't know whether to thank whoever did this or to fight them. Only joking here, folks. Only joking. There's no violence in history, after all. Nick, Nick, Nick. Nick, Nick, Nick. Nickelodeon! God, that's such a weird word, isn't it? Nickelodeon? How'd they come up with a name like that for a kid's channel? To find out, let's go back a couple years, plus a century, to the first half decade of the 1900s when watching a film was nothing like it is today. Back then, the film industry was dominated by the kinetoscope, better known as the peep show machine to most. No, it's not necessarily anything sexual. Shut up. Anyways, the kinetoscope wasn't really a practical way of showcasing a film to an audience. Only a single person could watch the movie at a time. Do you see the problem here? Enter the Nickelodeon, the first American indoor movie theater. Sort of the originator of the movie theater as we know it today, actually. Albeit with a few key differences. Compared to a modern movie theater that has around 200 to 300 seats, the Nickelodeon was quite small. They had, give or take, 100 seats per theater. Nevertheless, I have heard that the biggest, and I mean the biggest, Nickelodeons had the capacity for over a thousand patrons. Granted, this was very, very, very rare. Oftentimes, to go along with whatever film was playing, they would actually employ pianists to showcase their talents during a silent film to help, you know, nudge the audience in a certain direction, emotionally speaking. 
A Nickelodeon wasn't a hard thing to find back then. You could find it in things such as a storefront, usually. Thus, the limited number of seats available. Admission into this theater would set you back. Five cents apiece. Hence the name Nickel in Nickelodeon. If you're wondering what an Odeon is, it's an ancient Greek word for theater. Nickel theater. Now, short films may have been the Nickelodeon's bread and butter, but they were not the only thing they showed. They also showed vaudeville shows and a little bit of live-action music, as we discussed briefly a moment ago. Its audience, I should note, was much different than its predecessors in the film world, in the sense that before, seeing a film was something typically reserved for the bourgeoisie, as Marx would refer to them as, I mean the upper class here, but the Nickelodeon with its cheap price handed cinema directly to the common working fellow. Now anybody with a nickel could go see a movie. It changed the movie theater industry in that regard to something that we still enjoy today. Numerous film historians credit the Nickelodeon with helping usher us into the modern age of cinema. It was missing some things that we enjoy now, like popcorn, the prototypical movie snack. Everybody gets popcorn at the movies. I do it. I finish most of the damn thing before the movie even starts just watching the previews. Anybody else like that? Anyways, there was absolutely no popcorn in the Nickelodeon. Movie theaters wouldn't start selling popcorn until the Great Depression era as a means to survive. Initially, they weren't even the ones doing the popcorn selling. It was just random vendors outside and sometimes inside of the theater doing it. Then the theater owners were like, oh shit, we could actually make some serious money selling popcorn. It's a very cheap snack to acquire, and it's very easy to make. To this day, it, along with other concessions, are where the movie theaters actually make most of their money from. You'd be surprised how little a movie theater makes just showing a movie. Anywho, back to the Nickelodeon. The first Nickelodeon theater opened in June of 1905 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Around 450 people were in attendance that day, slash night. The next day, over double that amount visited the theater. By the following year, the Nickelodeon had become the industry standard for showing films. Imagine that, less than a year old, and it becomes the industry standard. That's a big note to mark. At one point within a decade of the first Nickelodeon theaters opening, there were over 8,000 of them. I will repeat that, over 8,000 of them. It's safe to say that people loved the Nickelodeon, and that was kind of their undoing. See, so many people wanted to go to the theater that the Nickelodeon just couldn't accommodate anywhere near what the demand was, so larger theaters had to be constructed. Not quite our multiplex cinemas that we enjoy today. More so just larger movie theaters that fully occupy their own space instead of that of storefronts as the Nickelodeon did. The multiplex would not come until after World War II when World War II Air Force veteran Stanley Durwood created it. Do you know what else Durwood helped to create in the movie theater? The placement of cup holders in the movie theater. A toast of my cherry coke. That's my typical drink I get at the movies to that fellow. A true hero indeed. What's your drink when you go to the movie theaters? Do you have a typical drink? Are you an icy person? Anyways, sorry, ADHD. Back to the Nickelodeon once more, and forever. The original Nickelodeon theater didn't even make it five years before being torn down. Today, all that remains of the area is a plaque. They were all mostly gone by the end of 1915, Titanic style. There are a few theaters today that kind of bear the Nickelodeon name, but I don't think very many of them 
are connected to the original Nickelodeons, if any of them are. Oh, and fun tidbit to close this episode on. The name Nickelodeon is even older than the Nickelodeon theaters themselves. It was first used by a man named William Austin to describe his dime museum in Boston, Massachusetts from the year 1888. A dime museum was something that popped up towards the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. They were quite popular among the proletariat masses, aka the working class of that era. Now, why was a dime museum called the Nickel Theater? Oh, and we'll end on that note. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks for bearing with me as I try to find a happy medium between full scripted podcast and no scripted podcast at all. My ADHD kind of gets the best of me, but nonetheless, I hope you really like this episode, found it entertaining, found it informative, whatever. If you really like this episode, do me a favor and share it with your friends. Help me build up the show into something spectacular. If you really, 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 Oh my god. If you really, really like this show, check out my Patreon page. I post exclusive historical facts every single day. If you loved what I do on this show, you are absolutely going to love my Patreon page. And it helps out the show a ton. If you really, 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 uh, we're not doing it again. If you really, really, really like this episode and you just want to leave a one-time tip, please check out my Buy Me a Coffee page. Both pages are named Forgotten History Nerds. Thank you so much. And before you go, check out our other episode I just released at the same time as this. It is our Halloween special detailing the haunted side of American history. That's all for now. This is MV Jinzali signing off. We'll see you later. Remember to always read in between the lines.